Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Why do listeners become WERU members? What motivates them to take that step? One reason is a desire to make a difference. It turns out that a lot of people who listen to WERU are the same people who like to get involved in activities to improve the communities in which they live. Giving to WERU is one of those activities. Your new membership today will not only pay for the programs you listen to, it also creates the opportunity for someone else in your neighborhood to discover community radio. So please join us. The process takes minutes. The benefits last a long time. Contribute by calling 469-6600 during weekday business hours or give online at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, <coughs> as well as interviews with Native perspectives, topics, uh, as well as <laughs> interviews with artists, writers, and people of interest. Um, this morning, we'll be following up on our last, uh, last week's show on the uh, North Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, we sort of... Um, we had a, a very short show last week, and uh, we thought we'd have uh, lots of time this week to talk about uh, issues uh, in depth a little bit further. Um, <coughs> my my uh, co-host today, or my guest host, is uh, is Sherry Mitchell. Um, she's a director of land, the Land Peace Foundation, uh, Native Rights and Environmental Activist. Um, and uh, she does a lot of work uh, for the tribe. She's a tribal member, Penobscot Nation tribal member. Uh, the other guest that we'll have today is a <coughs> former uh, tribal representative from the Passamaquoddy tribe, Matt Dana, who just returned from uh, Standing Rock a couple days ago. And we'll talk to him about his experience uh, while he was there. Uh, we'll also be talking to uh, an individual from North Dakota, if she can <laughs> get through on that phone line. Um, and uh, I believe her first name is is uh, is Tara. I'm not sure what what her last name is. Uh, Sherry Sherry made the contact. So <laughs> so we'll be uh, talking to her. Uh, in a little bit. So um, last week, we we talked about, um, we opened the show with uh, about six minutes from Democracy Now!'s show uh, where Amy Goodman talked with the, the chair of uh, Standing Rock Sioux, uh, 
who described the situation there in, in that uh, it was shortly after the uh, security guards there released the tack dogs uh, into the crowd and Amy Goodman happened to get that on video and she also got uh, the, the security guards using pepper spray uh, on, on the native uh, protectors who were there. And uh, as a result of that video, about four days later, uh, Amy Goodman got, uh, well, an, an arrest warrant was issued for her arrest, for her participation in that, uh, that day when she videoed the, the dog attacks and the pepper spray incidents. Um, so um, I'm going to, Sherry's right here. She, uh, I'm going to see what uh, Sherry wants to bring forth from last week, if there's something that uh, stuck in her, in her mind from, from what we discussed last week. So Sherry. Good morning, Donna. There are so many things that struck me from last week that we talked about um, looking at the issue with the attack dog certainly is something that stood out in my mind um, because of the viciousness of it, because there is um, there's no other population of people in this country where that type of thing would happen, where there wouldn't be public outcry. Um, but when you contrast that to the rate of young black men being killed on the street, I mean, it's a different type of violence, but it's, it's this violence that's being aimed at people of color that's um, in the public eye and is being overlooked and somehow um, people are desensitized to the seriousness and the severity of it. And hoping that people get some kind of connection to the rate of violence that's occurring um, in this country, and certainly the contamination of our water is another form of violence that we're facing because it leads to all kinds of really rare and aggressive diseases. It's a it's an ecological genocide. Mm. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> we just happen to have uh, former Passamaquoddy representative. Uh, Matt Daner on the line right now. Uh, Matt, can you hear me? Yes, Donna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, <clears throat> I understand that uh, you were in Standing Rock uh, a few days ago. Yes, I, uh, I arrived there last Tuesday, and uh, we left Friday afternoon. So you were talking to me about uh, what you brought out to the uh, Standing Rock uh, camp. So tell, tell us about that. Sure. So the Passamaquoddies were able to uh, get a ceremonial permit and harvest a moose to take out uh, for the camp for everyone to uh, consume. And um, when we got there, it was a huge hit. I we, bet it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were so honored and happy that we brought that. They um, brought us right up front and sang us a song in honor in their language. So uh, what was the mood of the, uh, of the people there? What, what were they talking about? So they, they were talking about just the unity and the positivity and uh, stressing the nonviolence uh, protectors of the water. They, they 
every day and every few hours they would remind everybody that there was no negativity to be brought to the camp to the to the I guess protest no negativity brought to the camp and that all positive thoughts and prayer and ceremony will be conducted in a good way and was there any sort of uh, uh, action by the the security people while you were there I didn't see any security uh, when we were there we went from uh, the camps up to the the front line where uh, the burial sites were and I didn't see any security at all hmm. uh, there the, the morning we got there there had been some arrest but we didn't witness any of that what about the bulldozers were they on scene the bulldozers were there excavators um, but nobody was manning them uh, they had stopped I assume the day before um, but yeah they were they were still sitting there and we were told when we got there that they would be moving but by the time we had left they still had not uh, moved from the spot they were at okay look sherry looks like she has a question for you <laughs> good morning matt good morning what is your response to the ruling that came out yesterday from the first circuit court of appeals halting all progress out there um i know that that was something that was uh celebrated by many um it's certainly not a complete stoppage but it's a a pause that is now mandatory rather than voluntary. Did you hear about that ruling? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I, I did real quick. I, I glanced the story uh, last night in between meetings I've had, but it's you know that's a, it's a good thing. It's a it's a start. Um, hopefully, it continues and, and uh, this is able to be stopped. It, it's just a positive. Uh, I think people are getting it. To, attention now and this is getting attention and people are are seeing what's happening and you know it's based on it's more than just a protest it's about life and it's connected to everybody and i think everybody's starting to see this matt what do you think about the correlation between what's going out on out there it's on such a large scale um, but we're facing a lot of the same issues here at home and um what do you think the correlation is between what's going on there and the issues that we've faced it, faced here in relation to maintaining our um, subsistence and sustenance lifestyles? I think uh, um, it, it brings us back to the core of who we are as Native people, and uh, I think out there it's become a, um, an Indigenous issue worldwide, and it's brought attention to all of the different areas where people come from of what's going on there as well. Um, again, it it's, comes from the core of who we are as Native people, and it it, it reawakens uh, some of that cultural and uh, the cultural identity that is missing from some of our youth. Um, when you go out there to Standing Rock, there's so many young people, and it's so hopeful to see, and I was so thankful to be a part of that, Um that they're looking for that cultural identity of who we are as Native people and to live that. Did you notice that that was the same for some of the non-Native people that were there, that they were looking to renew those connections that they may have lost culturally with the earth? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of... Well, there was a, a larger population of non-Native people than I thought would be there, and you know they, they were respectful. Um, they were looking to be a part of it and reconnect with 
you know, uh, the earth. Do you, does the Passamaquoddy um, plan on sending any more people out? Or? Uh, uh, there's no definite uh, plan at this point. I'm sure that it will happen, um, uh, but we don't have anything set in stone. We're looking at next steps um, as we speak. So I, I think at some point there will be another continu- uh, contingency. Mm-hmm. A delegation heading out, out that way again. Um, I know that there's individual tribal members that are willing and trying to get out there as we speak. Yeah, how many uh, How many uh, Native... Uh, I know there's like over 200 tribes out there uh, represented. Uh, I'm wondering, in your estimation, about how many uh, people in all are out there? When I was there, um, there was... They said there was over 280 tribal nations represented by flags. Um, and for the amount of people there was, I was told there was just under 7,000 during midweek when we were there, and they were expecting it to grow to over 10,000 this past weekend. Wow, that's amazing. It is. <laughs> that is amazing. Yes. Yeah, and I guess they've got, they've got tribal representation from all over the world, South America, uh, uh, Alaska, Hawaii, I mean, yes. all when over we, Australia. Yeah. They, when we were there, they, uh, a chief from Amazon had come up and they shared um, some of their culture and prayers with us and songs. And then uh, the next day there was an indigenous gentleman from Australia that also shared. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Um well, thank you for talking with us, uh, Matt. Um, appreciate appreciate you taking your time. I know you were in a, an important meeting. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us. Appreciate Absolutely. it. All righty. Thank you, Matt. Bye-bye. Okay. And I'll let you introduce this person, okay. Sherry. <coughs> we have uh, joining us now from the camp out at Standing Rock, Tara Huska, who was the uh, Native American Affairs advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders in his presidential campaign, and she has been right there at the camp for quite some time. Welcome, Tara. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tara, we heard the decision that came in yesterday from the D.C. Um, Circuit Court of Appeals. What are your thoughts on that decision you're talking about the decision to basically put in this 20, 20 mile blockade, right? Um, I mean, I think it. You know, it's it's good to see that the the judge recognizes that there's the situation in which we have protesters, or you know, as we call ourselves, protectors that are actively stopping construction, and that there's this kind of increased situation of violence. And we've seen dogs unleashed on Native Americans, mace. You know, this. this in- increasingly um, hostile situation, and now the National Guard has been called in. Um, and so it's good to see that the, there's this there's this buffer zone, basically. Um, however, I'm I'm looking at this, you know, from a long picture standpoint, which is, you know, regardless of that buffer zone, the company has continued c- to construct on either side of it. Um, and so they're not going to invest their assets into something unless they think it's going to happen. I mean, they've they've gone. They're going right up to the very edge of this twenty mile boundary, and so I guess I'm I'm hopeful that people remain very um, aware and conscious of what's happening, and you know, watch watch very closely about what the company is doing. 
um, because their end, their end game is getting this pipeline through. Right. So they're not, I think it's really important that that point be stressed that this is not a permanent stoppage, that this is only the creation of a buffer zone so that presumably the, the environmental assessments and historical preservation assessments can be done. Well, this is, no, this is a buffer zone that's only actually in place until the um, lawsuit itself. So there's this this primary lawsuit that was filed with Earth Earth Justice Attorneys, um, basically asserting that there should have been an environmental impact statement. Um, So that's the lawsuit at at issue. And then there was this preliminary injunction, right, Mm -hmm. Um, to stop construction while that lawsuit went forward. The preliminary injunction was denied, but then it went on appeal. And now this, you know, order has been put in place, like basically saying no, no construction twenty miles either way, until the the case proceeds. So um, this is Donna, by the way. <laughs> uh, so Tara, when the when the case proceeds, and let's say that the uh, the result of that case is favorable to the tribes, let's just make that up. <laughs> Uh, what then happens if it is a, a favorable decision? I mean, any, any number of things can happen, but, you know, I, the, the ultimate assertion of this case was that, you know, an environmental impact statement should have been done. Right, so and it's just, so, a, just a re- the result is just an impact statement then, right? I mean, an environmental impact statement is significant. Those take upwards of a year to two years to complete mm-hmm. and require, you know, an intense review of, cultural sites, sacred sites, water, cumulative impacts. I mean, it, it, it's like the, you know, what an environmental impact statement for an infrastructure project of fossil fuels should be. <clears throat> I mean, that's that's the kind of review that should always be done, I think. You know, I mean, this doing, an, doing a low-level environmental assessment for a project that has such great risk to contaminate the surrounding lands and destroy and move earth and, you know, just, just all the things that come with a fossil fuel pipeline, um, yeah, it should have been done in the first place, and it's actually quite sad to watch companies argue against doing an environmental impact statement when they're saying their pipelines are so safe. Now, why wasn't the environmental impact statement done? Because this should be standard course, right? I mean, this should have been the first step. How is it that this company got away with not doing that? Um, I mean, you know, there are, there are lots of ways that companies try to get around an environmental impact statement by arguing an EA is enough that there aren't, you know, enough uh, impacts, but there are no, there's a finding of no significant impacts um, when they do their route, their route proposals. And then, you know, in this, in this instance, they actually did a, they did a, a great use of a, or, or widespread use of nationwide permit 12 to sec- segment pipeline, this gigantic pipeline into little pieces. Um, nationwide permit 12 is a, is a, essentially like a, a loophole that was intended to address small infrastructure projects like boat ramps and things like that, um, and therefore avoid a massive, you know, environmental review. But instead, now these companies are using Nationwide Permit 12 to segment massive infrastructure projects and avoid environmental review that is it should be, you know, automatically associated with something of that size. Yeah, I think that that's really troublesome, but it's kind of uh, the way that they've been operating. If we also look at the misuse of eminent domain, um, the taking of lands, um, that the original purpose of eminent domain was not for the benefit of private corporations, but now it's being misused um, for that purpose as well. And so there's been this kind of consistent, and you know, not just in this instance, but 
the consistent misuse of some of these regulations and the laws surrounding these types of activities by these corporations, um, which is completely uh, eliminating the voice of the people in this entire process um, in Standing Rock and surrounding areas, but also in a number of other areas. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. So do you see this, uh, this uh, protecting action, I guess, uh, lasting for, what, a couple more years maybe even? Or till he's um, you mean as far as, like, the, the encampment here on the ground? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this encampment is intended to stop the pipeline from being constructed. It's, you know, it, it's become a rallying point for many, many indigenous nations, but the ultimate goal here is to stop the co-access from going through the river. Um, the, the company's timelines are actually November um, to get the pipeline into the ground before the ground freezes. Um, and as I understand it, their, their, permitting, their permits actually expire in the spring. Um, so they, they're on a time crunch because once those permits expire, then they have to go through the process all, all again, and they're going to be, you know, very vehemently opposed this time around on, you know, every single aspect of this pipeline because there is such, you know, attention on it. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think folks are planning to stay here for years, but they're certainly planning to stay through the winter. Yeah, and, I, and that sort of uh, makes clear why they're so aggressive with their attack dogs and the, and the mace and... Uh, yeah, I mean, their investment, they've invested millions and millions of dollars at this point. Yeah, you know, and then and they were their arresting... Their at risk. Yeah, and they're arresting lots of people down there, right? I mean, they put an arrest warrant out for Amy Goodman and... Uh, yeah, we've had 69 arrests at this point. Yeah, yeah, so uh, it looks like they're, <laughs> they're really uh, just jumping all over people to uh, get this thing through. And, and I guess the the, you know, the National Guard now, uh, are they there as well? They are. And uh, in what kind of numbers? Um, you don't really see a ton of National Guard members. I mean, they're they're at the checkpoint. The blockade has now been turned into a checkpoint, so people can actually go through. Before, they were just straight up blocking the reservation. Um, and now there's National Guard members that are there that, you know, ask what you're, you know, where you are, warn you about what's, what's down the road, and then wave you on. Um, so, I mean, there's not a, not a huge presence there, but at the same time, I mean, we know that there is a, a massive emergency request that went out from the state and they've requested, you know, $6 million in emergency funds to, to justify this massive use of force against the, um, allegedly violent encampment, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. So we know that there's a lot of, a lot of manpower out there that's been called in. We talked about that last week, about the misuse of funds to actually protect those who are trying to circumvent the law in so many ways that they are actually using militarized police forces to protect lawbreakers, people who are systematically looking for ways to go around the laws, the regulations, and protections. You know, it strikes me that they had... um, moved this from the original route, which went through Bismarck, because the Army Corps determined that the route posed a potential threat to the city's water supply. And yet they don't seem to have the same concerns about this pipeline going underneath the Missouri River, which is 
the primary source of water for the Standing Rock Sioux. And we've faced generations of ecological genocide. And this is just the latest iteration of that. And I watched um, a video where you were talking about this, where, you know, Native people are standing up. We're standing up here in the state of Maine against the things that are happening here in our community, standing up to protect the rights of our future generations, our um, subsistence and sustenance lifestyles, the waterways. And we're all seeming to stand up in our own way and say exactly what you said, enough is enough. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. I think, you know, with regard to the rerouting of the pipeline from Bismarck and, you know, right by the reservation, I think that's a classic case of environmental racism just on its face. Um, If they put it further downstream, it's not going to impact the water of Bismarck. It's going to impact the water of the Sanding Rock Sioux Reservation, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. And, you know, it's it's a clear, you know, indicator of what's important and what they think matters and where they think they can get away with things. Um, they seem to think that putting it right by the reservation, that there would not be, it, it, it would probably be like a little fight, you know, but one that they can get through. Um, and instead it's become this massive, massive encampment of people and folks saying that, you know, as you said, enough is enough. Um, I think it's, it's really kind of this moment where, and I think indigenous people across the board are, are tired of this. You know, we're tired of watching and seeing these projects, you know, disparately impact our communities, always coming through our land. You know, the, the projects go through out of sight, out of mind, and those happen to be our communities. Um, you know, we're the first climate change refugees in the United States, our indigenous people down, down in Louisiana. Uh, we've got relocation laws on the books for the folks in Alaska who are watching their homelands go underwater. Um, and we've got, meanwhile, you know, these there are still egregious human rights violations occurring here in North Dakota, South Dakota, and throughout um, Indian country, you know, in the form of seeing ICWA violated left and right. We know our children are still very much at risk, um, you know, taken out of home at a 12 to 1 ratio in a lot of states and, you know, put into the adoption industry for profit. So our, our children are still being taken from us. And we've got, you know, something like Violence Against Women Act. Yeah, we've got like a temporary, we've got like this small fix. But at the same time, like, that's not enough. We're not getting the same form of justice that you would get in any other state in this country. That's a lessened version of justice. Um, you know, our, our women and our children are not, are not protected in the same way that every other U.S. citizen is. And most people cannot believe that. Most people can't believe that you can walk onto an Indian reservation, commit a violent crime, and, and walk away. Um, that's a stark reality for Native people. And, you know, looking at, you know, when you're in Washington, you see people... You see tribal leaders come up on the hill and advocate for you know, getting hospitals, getting schools, having basic, basic needs for their people um, as our children have, you know, crazy high rates of suicide. And then you watch the Congress not fund our budget, you know, like they, you watch Congress not fully fund our budget. So you see um, schools that are underfunded. You see hospitals that are underfunded. You see these basic levels of needs that were agreed to by treaty. Every every square every, every square inch of land we're on today is Indian land, and you know this was negotiated for. It was um, taken by force or by you know very very forceful um, treaty negotiations under duress. You know, I mean, it's a situation in which I think Native people really are tired of it, and we're also you know now we have the power of the internet, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so people can't say, I don't know a Native person or I, I don't ever see Native, Native American people because now there's a whole bunch of them you can talk to online, you know, that are coming out of their communities that are, you know, in cities, in reservations saying, you know, enough is enough. We we're tired of this. You know, like the only, the only representation we have is in something as stupid as sports mascots and as, as, as dehumanizing. Um, and that's not okay. You know, it's, it's not okay that we're still these caricatures in, in the American narrative and not real people with real problems um, who are essentially the forgotten people, yet we're the first citizens of this country. Yeah. And, you know, and I think what's really telling about this is the fact that they've, they've they, you know, they've brought these criminal charges and, uh, against the, the protectors of the land, and, you know, the people that are releasing these attack dogs and spraying people with mace and attacking the, the people, they don't, they don't get charged with anything. And yet, yeah. and yet this, these videos are all over the world, and they're showing what's happening there. And what do they do? They turn the National Guard loose out there, and they, and they start arresting the, the protectors? I mean, what, the, what kind of uh, justice is that? Exactly. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing instead Amy Goodman getting an arrest warrant which issued as the, you know, North Dakota police who stood there and stood idly by while those, while the, while those attacks were happening, not protecting citizens. You know, we're citizens just like every other citizen in this nation. And that was unilaterally happened in 1924, but we are still citizens, therefore deserving of rights. Um, but there are no rights on display that I've seen. I mean, the, the rights belong to the company, they belong to the people that are protecting this uh, private interest, essentially. I mean, it's, it's a property interest. It's an asset interest. Yeah, I mean, they've even put a chilling effect on the, on the, the press, the media, which, you know, has a constitutional right to be there. Uh, exactly. And I, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting that that's not a, really a bigger story, because I think it yeah. really should be. You know, and I think it's it's also very frustrating that, in turn, you know, the media is still heavily focused on the election that's happening um, instead of, you know, this incredible human rights violation and, and, and civil rights movement that's really happening in North Dakota. You know, this is a, it's a historic moment for indigenous people. I mean, this is, to see over 200 tribes come together and, and, and be together, you know, and, and exist together, it, it, it's, it's so powerful and it means so much. Um, and it should be like this kind of, you know, I think it should be all over the news, but it's, well, again, I mean, we don't see ourselves in the news, right? And instead we're seeing ourselves getting charged for trespass when it's actually our treaty land, which is really crazy when you think about that. I mean, these are Lakota people being charged with criminal trespass for going on Lakota land. Mm -hmm. But not only that, you know, the, the history here has always been, you know, you, you, you do something against a, a, a white person and that, and, and the white person usually... Um, comes out on top. Well, the white person here happens to be Amy Goodman, a journalist, mm-hmm. and they're still uh, pursuing charges against her. And you would think that every freaking media organization in this country would be worried about setting a precedent here, uh, you know, a chilling effect on, on the media and the press. Yeah, and I mean, you, it, it's interesting that Amy Goodman was issued with, a, with an arrest warrant, but somehow the you know the Bismarck Tribune and the and the traditional conservative news sources that were there did did not receive any type of admonishment. Yeah, I'll bet because they didn't video anything. Mm. No, I think it's because you know I I mean from what I can tell, Amy Goodman has been the only person charged with anything, and she's you know 
a journalist that has been on the side of you mean any journalist, the protectors. Yeah, you mean any journalist charged with anything? Like, uh, yeah. Amy Goodman actually reported yesterday that a citizen journalist, uh, Sarah Long, was arrested and jailed on Sunday and charged with criminal trespass after she filmed portions of the pipeline under construction and posted it to Facebook. Um, And I think that one of the things that is becoming really clear to people is that the major network um, media is no longer reporting the news. They have become a propaganda machine for um, corporate America and that you can't rely on those sources. And so what's interesting to me is not that there's only one media person that is being arrested. What's interesting to me is that there's only one media person being arrested who's telling the yeah. truth. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's the people who are telling the truth who are being systematically targeted. So what the message is here is that uh, you better not be out there telling the truth about what we're doing. Um, and I think that we've seen in other parts of the world where these um, struggles that Indigenous people have faced have led to the disappearance of those who are on the front line of some of these things. And here we are seeing um, subtle implications of the United States moving in that same direction right here uh, on U.S. soil. And hopefully it doesn't take the disappearance of some of these frontline protectors to get people to wake up to what's going on here. I mean, what do you think it's going to take for people to start recognizing what's going on here? I've been stunned to talk to even some Native people who have said, yeah, I kind of heard about what's going on in North Dakota, but what's that all about? You know, I think that there is a growing sense of awareness, there's a growing awakening that's happening around the world. We've seen evidence of that um, all over. This is the most profound evidence we've seen of that in the United States, I think, in history. Um, What is it going to take for the general population to really wake up to recognize that their lives are at risk as well? Um, You know, I mean, I I, I agree with the, you know, the the sentiment that I, I am very hopeful that it doesn't take our frontline activists starting to disappear like it like it has in other countries. Um, at the same time, I think that Keystone XL did bring the climate conversation and the environmental conversation into the mainstream, um, and it made it made a lot more people um, aware of what was happening. You know, it, it really did, and it made a lot more people aware of the fact that there are these pipelines that are going through the ground and they're full of oil and that we don't have very much, you know, we have finite water resources and that these projects are harmful and impactful. And, you know, I think the oil industry has been trying to recover from that ever since. Um, And it's not been doing a great job. You know, I mean, instead we've got wells that are running dry. We've got wells that are under production um, that simply actually cannot, are not, there's not enough need for that product actually justify these massive pipeline projects um you know and and the ultimate goal that i see actually honestly is 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 tar sands right like that's the economic structure i mean they really really want to get through tar sands lines um we've got a giant pipeline project that's planned in minnesota line three 
Um, this this pipeline project, actually, Dakota Access, there's there's one further up the way that's called Uplands. Uplands is a tar sand line. So I'm, I'm interested to see, like, you know, I think that the, the company's overall goal here is to get tar sands oil through, which is even more, I mean, that's the dirtiest fuel on the planet. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I think, and I think people have become at least slightly aware of this, you know, maybe not as something as, 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 uh, as, fur- as far along as tar sands, but I think, I think folks at least understand that pipelines can be dangerous. Um, especially when we see, you know, every, every couple of days, it feels like, you know, there's a, there's an explosion somewhere or a bomb train has exploded or, you know, some type of environmental disaster that I think are starting to reach the mainstream narrative. However, when it's indigenous people, I think it's still very, very, very largely absent. Um, and so I, I, I'm actually hoping that this, this conversation brings forward, um, indigenous people and, and the, and the struggles and the life livelihoods and, you know, existence of Native people within these boundaries. You know, our prophecies talk about the black snake, and many have referred to these pipelines as the black snake. And I was talking with somebody this morning, and we were talking about this black snake being like Hydra. You know, you talked about Keystone XL, that you cut off one head and two more grow. And really, that's what you're talking about here, is that uh, people need to be aware that this is uh, one continuous push to keep us in this outdated um, use of fossil fuels, preventing us from moving forward to join other parts of the world who are doing um, really impressive, progressive things to align their way of life with the earth. And um, my hope is the same as yours, is that people will begin to recognize that this is not a singular struggle, that this is a struggle that's being faced by people across all of the borderlands. Um, Right now in Florida, with the Sable Palms pipeline, um, there are 160 landowners who have eminent domain cases. It's Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. The um, original Mikasuki Seminole who live in the Everglades and Big Cypress are being forced out of their cultural and traditional way of living, where they've always had a home there in those areas because they want to open up these national parks to um, exploration and to extraction. And so all of these things that indigenous people have been facing for so long um, are leaking out into the commons and other people are starting to be impacted by those same things, which makes Felix Cohen's Canary in the Coal Mine the miner's canary um, analogy with American Indian people, kind of prophetic. And I think as more and more of those impacts are felt by people who are living outside of these um, areas that were traditionally targeted, we've been traditionally targeted here in this country for hundreds of years, that they're going to start to recognize um, that no one is safe from these same types of impacts. And... um, it's a scary time, but it's also a hopeful time because we have so many people that are now starting to wake up and come together to stand for life. I agree. And I, I really hope that, you know, the, the, the push becomes, we are fighting, we are fighting the symptoms, right? So every single new pipeline, it is a new head. It's a new head of the Hydra. We've got, you know, in, in Minnesota, it was Sandpiper Line 3. Enbridge pulled, a, pulled the funding from Sandpiper. They put it towards Dakota Access. They saw a pipeline that was further along and thought they could get it through that way. 
Um, you know, there, there are uh, numerous, I mean, I know so many different folks that are fighting different pipeline battles in their home states or different extractive industry projects or whatever it is. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful that we begin to put a face to what's behind the scenes. You know, we, get, we put a face to Enbridge, the largest pipeline company in the world. We put a face to that. We look at energy transfer partners, the, 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 the company that's pulling the strings behind Dakota Access. I mean, it, it, we should no longer be looking at just the individual project, pro, projects, which is what we are, we are basically forced to do, which is, okay, now we got another pipeline coming through. we got another, like, you know, uh, fracking project that wants to, you know, be pop up next to, our, next to our communities. And that's what we're kind of forced with right now. But I'm also hopeful that we can develop and kind of, you know, advance our, our technique into actually looking at who's behind the scenes, who's pulling these strings, and why are they not focusing on renewable industry? Because all these companies have a little renewable industry department. They really do, but they've, you know, they, they underfund it and they, they, well, they don't under, I mean, they don't put any funding, I mean, essentially towards them. You see these people, I've met with them before. Um, they sit in this little tiny office and, you know, have a very, very small impact in the overall profit margin of, of the company because in turn, I mean, these, these massive companies have legislated the federal government and have lobbied and poured so much money into our Congress that the oil industry is essentially unregulated. I mean, I, I've talked with agencies that actually don't know their own regulations or see gray areas because it's been so cut out by Congress, mm-hmm. um, particularly with oil. And, you know, at the same time, these same, in, these same industries, you know, the same industry magnets have, have then like, you know, in turn pushed for heavy, heavy, heavy regulation of green energy. And so, you know, they've, they've created a, a, a system in which they want to continue profiting off of fossil fuels, they want to continue profiting off of extractive industry, dated technology, and not allow us to move forward. Um, and so I, I, I am hopeful that the American people and people around the world, you know, basically become sick of corporations controlling the conversation. Um, they become sick of having a Congress that represents these companies and not us. You know, we... We have, we have drinking water needs, right? I mean, we, we're not going to survive as a, as a species of people if this is the continued path we go down, is that we put profits over human beings. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that the conversation continues to develop and grow and reach this mainstream audience more than just, you know, what did Donald Trump say today? Yeah, and uh, speaking of the, the more the wider uh, picture, I understand that there was a break in the, what do you call it, the Eastern Pipeline in Alabama, out that way. And, uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And so that's hiking up the price of gas in those areas. I think it was Alabama up to, I don't know, Georgia or someplace. Some locations don't even have access to gas right now. Yeah, yeah. So you think, you know, take a lesson, look at this, look at what happened. Uh, but it doesn't seem people are... are uh, getting it. But the other thing that you mentioned was the, these corporations and their tactics and that how they should be looked at close, uh, a little more closely. And uh, there's some investigation, I guess, on the license plates that uh, the people that were there. And they found that uh, some of those were actual uh, mercenaries that were hired by the, that, the, the corporation. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like they're, they're bringing in, you know, professional soldiers to deal with, you know, 
non-combatant people, really. So to me, I mean, that's, to me, that's a crime in itself. So, I mean, it, it just shows that they're, they'll just go to any extreme to get what they want. I think the unfortunate thing about that is that we have these um, private militias that are owned by these corporations, and people are um, paying attention to things that are really um, sensationalized and irrelevant. They're distractions in the larger scheme of things, like what is Donald Trump saying today? Uh, it's easier for people to focus on the ridiculous than it is for them to face these issues that are really a threat to their lives. And um, when you have these private militias being formed, when you have somebody like Monsanto buying Blackwater, and you have all of these um, former special forces, military, coming in to represent the interests of these companies over the interests of the people, um, then you can no longer claim to have a democracy. And we can't be claiming in this country that we have any type of democracy when we're allowing private militias to override the wishes of the local people and to quiet their voices with violence and suppression and bypassing and circumventing the laws. Did we lose Tara? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. But I do, I do actually have to go pretty soon. I've got a, I've got a camp meeting. To okay. Get to. <laughs> Any final words for our listeners, Tara? Um, yeah, you know, I, I really, I've been encouraging everyone I can um, to know that this, this project has, has not, we do not have a victory. It has not stopped construction. We still have active construction every day. Um, this company is, you know, there's this 20-mile boundary, but that does not mean that they are still not constructing on either side and doing everything they possibly can to get this pipeline in the ground and through the river. Um, if you can come on to North Dakota, please come out here. Uh, we need people that are willing to stay out here for the long haul and be on the front lines um, and assist with, you know, making sure that we don't let this, let attention on this die and this, this, this pipeline go through. Um, I, think that's re I think that's really what the company is hoping for, is that we lose steam and it gets cold and people go home, and then they get the pipeline through. Um, and so if you are, if you can't actually physically come out here, um, there are, you know, call your, call your representatives. There's going to be a hearing that's coming up actually in the House on September 23rd um, discussing this pipeline and, you know, educating House members about it. So, you know, support that way. If you want to call Congress or call your senators, support that way. If you want to call the White House, you know, tell Obama to direct his administration do an EIS. You know, why did you not do that in the first place? Look, you're reassessing these permits right now. Right now, these permits are allegedly all being reassessed by these agencies. So, you know, if that's the case, then call, call the president and say, you know, what does the reassessment process look like? Are you going to demand a full EIS on these? Um, and if, you know, you're willing to, if you have, you know, funds to donate, there are several different pages to, to put your funds forward. Um, the direct action folks work Red Warrior Camp has an Amazon wish list. They're going to be, I mean, that's now been updated for winter. Um, there's a legal fund to, to help bail people out of jail. There's the Camp of the Sacred Stone, which is like the general fund to, you know, keep people on the ground fed. So any of any and all of those things um, are super helpful for the, for the folks that are out here. 
Thank you very much for joining us today, Tara. We appreciate you giving us this time. We know that there's a lot going on right now in the camp, and we're all with you. Uh, we just spoke to a gentleman, Matt Dana, who is a representative from the Passamaquoddy tribe who just returned from the camp, um, and they brought supplies, including a, an entire moose. And we have a group of Penobscot people, our second group, that's going to be leaving in the morning with a truck and a U-Haul full of supplies as well. And um, hopefully people will continue to participate and continue to show up. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Um, I know that there are people all over the country and all over the world who are doing their best to get there right now. So thank you for your yeah. work. Yeah. And please let me know when the Penobscot people are, are coming in. I had such a wonderful time meeting all the different tribes of Maine. Yeah, well, they should be there by Friday, I believe. So I'll have them look you up. Okay. All right. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You know, one of the things that came up this week that um, really was kind of a, a neon flashing sign for me was um, when folks were being arrested and they were being denied bail and they were being denied access to their attorneys um, if they weren't from the state of North Dakota saying that the um, police force in that area and the court system in that area was saying we don't need to allow any attorneys who are not licensed in the state of North Dakota um, to come in here. And when you're getting into behaviors like that where you have an entire system that is complicit in denying the constitutional rights of its citizenry, we're talking about an obligation on the part of the citizenry to rise up and to deal with that type of tyranny. And that's what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a systemic um, collaboration by not only these corporations and private militias, but local police forces and the local judiciary to suppress the constitutional rights of the people, to block the voice of the people, and to deny them all of the rights that should be granted to them under, under a democratic society. Yeah, and you know, that's the same stuff that happened uh, prior uh, World War II, prior Hitler, all this stuff with the, the laws and the suppression and uh, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, I hate to say it, I mean, it, it's happening. And you know, history does repeat itself. And, you know, we, we've got to really wake up and, 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 address the, and address this. We do have to address it. And we have to recognize that this is an opportunity that's being presented to us, that we are being shown all of the things that have been hidden in the darkness. These are impacts have all been reserved for the indigenous communities and for the fringe communities like the rural poor in Appalachia. And they're now starting to leak out and to impact everyone. So these things that have been hidden in the shadow by leaving them in the areas that people tend to ignore um, are coming into the light in a much more aggressive way these days. It's happening across the board, which means it's an opportunity for us to rise up, to wake up, to show up, to stand up, and to start healing some of the underlying factors um, that are at play here, which when we get back to the core, as Matt was talking about, our core teachings as Indigenous people is uh, this responsibility that balances out all of the rights that we have to live on this earth, which is the responsibility to live in balanced harmony with the rest of creation. 
we are being forced to go back to the very original teachings that we all have somewhere. If our trauma is embedded in our DNA, then our original teachings are also in there. And we need to all call those forward so that we can carve a path forward that actually sustains and protects life. And if we don't do that, then our continued survival is not guaranteed as a species. Well, you know, and I've been thinking, too, about people are saying, well, you know, Standing Rock, it's just not the pipeline that people are protesting. You know, it's the water. Water is life. They're protecting the water. They're protecting the environment. And you know what? We have such pristine water and land in the state of Maine. And they're looking at excavating Round Top Mountain uh, for mining. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you're going to have half of uh, Aroostook County dug up and looking like the, the minefields out west. Right. And there goes the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And why? Because we didn't do a damn thing about it when we could have and should have. Right. And so we have to do that because our, um, our governor and his questionable sanity is also talking about fracking here in the state of Maine. And we have on this planet access to only 1%. There is 3% of the water that is drinkable, but we only have access to 1% of that or 1.5% of that because industry um, for the first time in history is actually eliminating our water source. Um, the water that we've had has traditionally been run through this water table and recycled back to the earth. Now for the first time in history, because of the contamination and the destructive nature of these type of extractive industries, water is being taken out of the water table. When they do hydrofracking, they put the water through high pressure pipes down below the water table, below the bedrock, to break up this shale to get the shale gas out. That water doesn't return to the water table. And it takes an extraordinary amount of water to do hydrofracking. And so the threat that that poses to our lives uh, cannot be overlooked because we all are made of water. We all require water to survive. All of the things that we're dependent on to live, in addition to that, all of our food sources are dependent on water. And so if we look at where we are and the critical need for people to rise up right now and to do something about it, not just to shake your head and say, isn't that awful? Um, because you're going to be standing there shaking your head saying, isn't that awful when you watch your grandchildren die? And that will be truly awful. So it's really important for people to stand up right now and to get involved, to take the responsibility, to educate yourselves, and to honor your obligation as citizens of Mother Earth and stand in protection of all life. Do you know, uh, do you have any, um, off the top of your head, <laughs> any resources that people can go to to learn more? Uh, I don't. Places often. that you go, you know, when you want to find out what's going on. Well, I, you know, I go online and yeah. I start looking um, more deeply. There are a number of sources um, where people can get information on hydrofracking. All you have to do is Google hydrofracking, hydro and there are unlimited amounts of um, sites available to provide you with information about that. 
Um, also, there are unlimited sites available um, to um, educate people about the dangers of tar sands. And um, had I been prepared, I could have brought some sites, and maybe we can put we them can up put on them the website. Up. Yeah. I can send you some things that we can put up on the website. Um, and ignorance is no longer a viable excuse. We all have unimaginable access to information in a way that we never have before. And so you can't say, well, I didn't know that. People are so disconnected from the very things that they're reliant upon for their survival. Um, they need to trace, begin tracing that back. If you want to know where to begin, look around your house. What is it that you require for your survival, your food and your water? Trace that back to source. Learn everything you can about that. Um, understand how everything is connected to your survival. And if you allow yourself to continue to be disconnected from these elements of your survival, they're not resources. They're the sources of our survival. If you allow yourself to be completely disconnected from those things, um, then you can't complain when you no longer have access to those things, that we have an obligation to reconnect to the sources of our survival and to do everything that we can to protect them. We have an obligation to trace those roots back. Yep, uh, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, people that listened to the show uh, last week and this week, and uh, we had a few shows prior, um, I think they totally get the issue. And usually the people that listen to this show um, are already um, partially educated anyway in this stuff. Uh, but uh, the, what's happening in Standing Rock uh, is really, uh, it's really dangerous. It's dangerous uh, because of what the corporations are, are doing, and they're doing it in plain sight. And, uh, and the media, the, the national media, is not, this should be a story every freaking night on NBC, CBS, uh, and ABC. I mean, all of those national networks, it, it should be a continuous coverage. Right. Uh, so that being said, um, I guess I... I think we've we've sort of said it all. I mean, have you got anything else you want to say? I would just like to remind people that it is a very frightening time, but it's also a very hopeful time that these things coming into our conscious awareness, being placed before our eyes, gives us an amazing opportunity to heal them. And all of our prophecies talk about this time when all of the nations of the world would rise up together and to begin healing the earth, protecting the earth. And we need to heal the earth before we can heal the wounds that we've um, created in our relationships with one another. That's our original umbilical relationship with life on this planet is with the earth. And so when we heal that, we can begin to heal ourselves as well. Okay. Thank you, Sherry. Um, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, uh, Donna Loring. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his, new, from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank our guests, uh, Terry Huska uh, and Matt Dana, and our engineer, Amy Brown. Please join us next month for another Webinacki Windows. <laughs>